Okay, are we good? Can you hear me, Larry? Okay, we're good to go. Larry can hear, so we can, we can begin. Psalm 2 is the second psalm. I know that's a profound insight, but it's the, uh, it's the second of 150 songs that God gave to his, originally to his Old Testament people, whereby they were to sing unto him. Over the, uh, the years, a little phrase has developed called the, the regulative principle of worship. And that's the notion that, uh, that we as God's people are A, to worship him, but B, we're not to worship him any old way that, uh, that we might desire or anything that might strike our fancy. We're to worship him the way he has ordained his worship is to be performed. In the Old Testament, God gave his people songs that were to be sung unto him that he desired to hear, reflective of his grace and his glory and his sovereignty, etc., etc. And so for, uh, for 3,000 years, really about 3,500, Psalm 90 was written by Moses. We, we think of the book of Psalms as mainly being the, uh, the work of uh, King David, uh, which we put it at 3,000 years old, but uh, Psalm 90 was written by Moses, so that takes us back 3,500 years. Uh, songs that, uh, that God gave to his people to sing unto him in acts of public worship. Now, <clears throat> if um, you have a monstrous modern dictionary in front of you, and somebody tells you to look up a word that begins with the letter M, if somebody says, look up a word that begins with the letter A, we know it's at the beginning. And if somebody says, look up a word that begins with the letter Z, we know that's at the end. But for most of us, if we have to look up something that begins with the letter M, we kind of sit there for a moment and go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we have to hum the little alphabet song till we figure out where M is, and, and then we can proceed from there. Now, when did we learn the little alphabet song? When we were three, or three years old, two years old, four years old, somewhere in there. And we still remember it, right? And we still use it. And we recognize it instantaneously. If somebody else starts humming it, uh, the, the first couple of notes, the rest of us instantaneously recognize that that's the little alphabet song that helps us use dictionaries and stuff like that. In other words, there's just kind of a remarkable thing about the way God has, has wired us that, that music sticks with us. Uh, <laughs> you have to be careful when you use this word. It's a mnemonic device, not demonic device. It's a mnemonic advice. comes from the Greek word noose for mind. It's a device that that our minds utilize to help us think about things and remember things. The little alphabet song, if we were to just ask a, a small child to memorize a whole bunch of letters cold, that would be a pretty hard thing to do. But when we sing it and we do it a few times together, the little child can, can quickly start singing those same things over and over again to himself. And, and it becomes a tool 
that he uses all the rest of his life. So some way, somehow, pedagogically, educationally, God has built into us a capacity that when we sing something, it goes down real deep in, into our hearts and minds and souls. And it's, it's something that, uh, if it's a song that we haven't heard in years, when we hear it again, it, we can almost start singing it right away because those, those latent memories just, just come right back. So the, the, the book of Psalms were given to the people of God a, to worship God as he desired to be worshipped. B, to bless and edify the people of God. C, to help them remember stuff. Last year we had a Sunday school, or our Sunday school class, we went through the Pentateuch, if you, some of us might recall that. And we had a lesson entitled, Remember, Don't Forget. And it was just dozens of verses that Moses wrote in the Pentateuch about when he would teach the people of God something, it would always be appended with a, Remember these words, positively or negatively. Don't forget these words. Moses used that phrase dozens of times in the Pentateuch, admonishing the people of God, when you hear something remarkable or when you see something remarkable, when God does a great uh, act of mercy on our behalf, remember those things. Don't forget them. Because in your, in your memorizing of those things, in your remembering of those things, you're going to find great blessing and, and great mercy and great consolation. So the scriptures over and over, all 66 books are given to us to remember, but one book is given to us especially to be sung so that those words would, would incredibly go down into our hearts and souls. They, would, they will form and, and motivate and and discern our, our worldview. They will do things for us that if we can draw these things back on a regular basis, will guide us in our Christian lives uh, to a remarkable degree. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 <laughs> are right there at the beginning of our uh, Psalter, and all the rest of them, of course, uh, follow from there. We're going to meditate on, on Psalm 2 today. But there's some remarkable parallels between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as we work our way through this. Psalm 2 breaks down. It's a very lovely psalm to, to teach because it breaks down very nicely. It's 12 verses, so it's short. We can, we can focus on it. It's four stanzas of three verses. I use the word stanza because I don't have any better word to uh, use for, for a song. But it breaks down very, very nicely. The... The outline of Psalm 2 is very clear. It breaks down in such a way that the first three verses give us one scene, one setting. The next three verses give us another scene. The next three, another. And the final three give us the, the final uh, stanza there, the final picture. So the, the psalm's going to be moving around for us. We've got, different, uh, we've got different perspectives to be looking at here, but each... Every three verses gives us a stanza, and it, it communicates to us when, when we get to the end of the fourth stanza, it communicates a remarkable picture to us uh, of a wonderful story. Some of the psalms are written primarily as maybe individual prayers. Some of the psalms are written primarily as corporate prayers. Some of the psalms are penitential 
psalms, psalms where the people of God are crying out to God for forgiveness because of their waywardness and, uh, and that sort of thing. Some of the psalms are imprecatory psalms. <clears throat> we don't have a clue what to do with those nowadays. And some of the psalms are messianic psalms that, that speak, even though written a, a thousand years beforehand, but speak primarily of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Psalm 2 is unquestionably a messianic psalm. And we'll see that very clearly as we work our way through. King David starts with a question. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? Wow, quite a commotion going on here. What in the world's happening? Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So right off the bat, we've got a real tumultuous picture here at the beginning of our little worship song. The, the, there, there, there's raging among the nations, the kings of the earth, the rulers of, of the nations are, are combined in opposition to something. They, they, they don't like something and, and they want to rebel against us. Verse 3, what, what are the kings of the earth and the rulers of the nations saying? Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Why are the nations raging? David asks in verse 1 and he answers it in the next two verses. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the nation, are combined, they're, they're united in opposition to something. <laughs> and right off the bat, that's kind of an unusual picture, isn't it? Because most of the time, these kings are usually kind of fighting each other. King A wants his kingdom to, to take over kingdom B, and King B wants his kingdom to take over kingdom A, and that sort of thing. Most of history's kind of kings being grumpy with each other, and that sort of thing. But in this psalm, um, the kings of the earth, the rulers of the, of the nations are, are united together against a common enemy. And the common enemy is in verse 3, let us break, verse 2, against the Lord and against his anointed. We know what the word anointed is, don't we? It's the Old Testament word, it's the Old Testament word for Messiah, the New Testament word for Christ. The, the rebellion is against the Lord and against his anointed. The kings of the earth are, are united in their opposition to them. And, and, and what do they say? What do they want to do? We want to break their bands asunder. We want to cast away their cords from us. So what's it a picture of? <laughs> it's a picture of the nations raging against the sovereignty of God and the establishment of his anointed, the Messiah, Old Testament, the Christ, and the New. It's the nations wanting to cast their, their bands, their cords away to, to break them because the, the rules, the laws, the precepts of God, we don't want them to rule us. We, we want to do our own thing. We, we want to be our own people. We want to make up our own rules. And so the nations of the world are united in rebellion against God and his anointed one, Christ, his anointed Christ. 
So, wow. If this psalm only had one stanza instead of four, we'd be kind of pessimistic about the whole thing, huh? Because we would say, who can oppose the kings and the rulers of the world if, if they've united themselves together? We would say, you know, just little old me, I can't do nothing about that. But thankfully, we got another stanza to read. And the stanza changes. <laughs> stanza 1, verses three through, 1 through 3, are set on earth. And we're looking at the earth and north, south, east, and west. All we see is rebellion and tumult as the kings and the peoples rebel against the Lord and against his anointed. Scene 2 leaves behind the tumult of the world. And now we're in the, the peace and the quiet and the serenity of heaven. Verse 4, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. So see, verses 1 through 3, we're, we're kind of nervous, huh? Because who can oppose the kings of the earth when they unite themselves together? But now we're looking at things not from an earthly perspective. In, in the second stanza, we're looking at things from a heavenly perspective. And the first thing we notice is God's laughing. It's not the only place in the scripture where God laughs. We've got another verse or two on your outline sheet that uh, articulates that, but we don't have time to, to look at all of that stuff. But uh, at any rate, Second stanza has God in heaven laughing and saying that he's going to put the earthly rebellion in derision. He's, he's going to have these little puny earthly rebels that are, that are trying to break his bands and cast away his cords. They're going to be placed into con derision, into confusion. Their, their, their little rebellion is not going to accomplish what they think it is going to accomplish. The Lord, the, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. I thought Jesus was such a nice guy. What's this wrath and sore displeasure stuff going on here? Okay. In that verse, <laughs> we've, got, we've got a word and a phrase that, that kind of shock us a little tiny bit, doesn't it? God will, will vex them. He'll, he'll judge them in his wrath. He'll, he'll vex them in his sore displeasure. The wrath of God, that, that Hebrew word for wrath, it's a, it's a word that describes... <laughs> A flared nostril. You see a boxer before a match or a professional football player before the big game or whatever. What are they doing? They're, they're, they're breathing so deeply. They're getting themselves puffed up, right? They're, they're, their nose is flared. They're, they're bringing in so much oxygen to get ready for a great contest. The wrath of God is that in which God, is, God gets himself pumped up for a remarkable adventure. His, his sore displeasure is that which he, he, make, he gets himself ready to deal with things, not because they're hard for him. He's already laughed at the puny rebellion, 
but, but there's, a, there's a, a phase of mercy in which God, God laughs, and there's a time of action when God acts in his, in his wrath and in his sore displeasure, and he makes a decree. Look at what he says. Then he'll, verse 5, he'll, he'll speak in his wrath, he'll vex them in his sore displeasure. What does he speak? He's, he's about to say something that is going to put the earthly rebellion to naught. It's going to totally wipe out the effectiveness of the earthly rebellion. What's he going to say? He's going to say verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The Hebrew word set there is also the, uh, the word we had back in, uh, in verse 2, the <clears throat> concept of the, the king and his anointed one to anoint, to establish, to set. So this is more or less the second time in this uh, psalm that that Hebrew word has been used. I've set, I've established, I've anointed my holy one, my king, upon my holy hill of Zion. So God is not, the first stanza, God is not at all concerned about the earthly rebellion. The kings of the earth can, can join themselves together. Boy, there's a conspiracy theory for you, huh? The kings of the earth can join themselves together in rebellion against the laws and the commandments of God. But in heaven, God just chuckles. He says, this doesn't bother me at all. I'm not phased, not worried about this at all, because I have established my king. You earthly kings don't bother me, because I've established my king on my holy hill of Zion. The earthly kings are of no matter, because Christ the king has been established upon the holy hill of Zion. Luther said, always check out the personal pronouns of Scripture. I've set my, the Father says, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So there, there's a complete contrast between stanza one and stanza two. Stanza one is, is tumultuous rebellion on the earth. Stanza two is, is perfect calm and serenity in heaven. Because the rebellion on earth in stanza one is going absolutely nowhere because of stanza two. Because God's anointed is set as king on his holy hill in Zion. So you and I might be scared if from our little perspective down here, we just see the event described in stanza one. <laughs> but that's why this psalm is written. Because it's to form our worldview. It's, 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 we're supposed to sing this. So it's supposed to go down real deep in our hearts and minds and souls so that the, the tumult of stanza one doesn't scare us because we have in our minds the reality of stanza two. The earthly rebellions mean nothing because God's king is established on his holy hill of Zion. Stanza three, wow. We get to listen to an inter-Trinitarian conversation. What? 
an inter-Trinitarian conversation, a conversation between the persons of the Trinity. I thought the Trinity was a New Testament doctrine. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, we're, we're real deep. <laughs> we're swimming in the deep end of the pool here, gang. Because right off the bat, uh, our third stanza says, I will declare the decree. So we're dealing with the, de the decrees of God. We're dealing with that which before time began was established and determined amongst the three persons of the Trinity. The decrees of God, that which you and I are, are presently in the midst of, history, is the outworking of the plans and purposes of God. History is the outflow of the decrees of God. Here we're taken back <laughs> way before the tumult of the kings rebelling on, on little old planet Earth. Here we're taken back into, into, into the, de the decrees of God in eternity past. And, and we're given... A declaration of that decree. I will declare the decree. What did, what did the members of the Trinity say to themselves before the universe was created? I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, God the Father has said unto God the Son, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt dash them in pieces, or thou shalt rule them with a rod, break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is a conversation <laughs> between the Father and the Son in eternity past. God declares that he's not worried about the tumults on, on the earth because he's already established his king. His king, his son, is established on his holy hill of Zion. And he's given his son a promise. And the promise is, ask of me, the father says to the son, ask of me and I'll give you the whole world. I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. When we read that from a New Testament perspective, we understand that the Father has given the Son a covenantal responsibility to do. In eternity past, God the Father prepares a plan of salvation for his people. God the Son executes the plan of salvation for his people. And God the Holy Spirit applies the plan of salvation for his people. God the Son was given the responsibility of taking upon himself human flesh. God the Father was not incarnate in human flesh. God the Holy Spirit was not incarnate in human flesh. God the Son was incarnate in human flesh. He took the covenantal responsibility of being the second Adam to fulfill those things that the first Adam failed to do. He represented his people by living a perfectly righteous life, 
by sacrificially giving that perfectly righteous life as a substitutionary atonement for the sins of his people. And God the Father perfectly accepts that perfect offering, accepts what the Son has done, gives to the Son the prerogatives that, that would have been given to, to the first Adam had he not fallen, now gives to, to the second Adam, his Son, the prerogatives of, of what man was originally created to do and to be. You've ful you fulfilled my covenantal demands, my son. Now ask of me what you will. Ask of me the nations for your inheritance as the reward for your obedience to the righteous requirements that you have fulfilled on behalf of your people. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a remarkable thing that we are listening to here. Uh, like Moses, we should take our shoes off when we're uh, listening to something like this because we're on very, very holy ground. Ask of me and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance. The nations that are right now rebelling against you, the father says to the son, ask of me and they're yours. The uttermost parts of the earth that are currently in a tumultuous rebellion against you, ask of me and they're your possession because of your obedience that you rendered to me. And <laughs> there is no doctrine more despised in the scripture by the world than the sovereignty of God. You shall, verse 9, you'll break them like a rod of iron. You'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If we would have sung this song every day for, you know, the past few years, we'd have a different perspective of God. <laughs> we'd, ha we'd, have a, we'd have a different understanding of who God is, of, of what he's done, of what Christ has done for his people, and the nature of his rule and his authority. The perspective of all of the Psalms in general, but maybe this Psalm in particular, it, it gives us a vision of, of Christ on his throne, his, his holy hill of Zion, that, that we really, that, that our generation desperately needs that is sort of kind of lacking in the things. We'll get to our fourth stanza in a minute, but let me, let me point out a, a thing or two here. Let's go back to verse 1. We're back in the, the tumult on the nations. Why do the heathens rage, heathen rage, and the people, now you see the next word there, imagine? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? What is it to imagine a vain thing? We have to break down the words, don't we? What's a vain thing? Okay, vain. Uh, if you've been reading, going through your Bibles, you might think of, uh, of the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What's the word vain mean? Something empty, something just ridiculously frivolous, something that just has no substance to it at all. Why are people imagining a vain thing? Why are people, what, we'll work on imagine in just a minute here, but why are, you, why are people thinking so much about something that's just plain, plain vain, plain silly, plain ridiculous, just plain ain't going to happen? Okay, now let's work on, on the word imagine here. Okay. Hebrew words and Greek words when we're in the New Testament, they, they can be translated by a number of different English words and so forth. 
It depends on the context for the translator and that sort of thing. We're in Psalm 2, but if we were to just hop up the page half a, half a notch there, we, we know Psalm 1, don't we? Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, that doesn't stand in the way of sinners, that doesn't seek, sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law, in God's law, doth he, what's the next word? Meditate. Guess what those two Hebrew words are? It's the exact same Hebrew word. Okay? So in Psalm 1, we, we've got a picture of the man who uses his mind to focus on something, to meditate on something. And what that man is focused on, that man is focused on the law of the Lord. It's his delight. He meditates on it day and night. And that psalm, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? <laughs> that's the good thing, right? That, that's the good guy. It's the good guy who meditates, who uses his mind. And the Hebrew word comes from a, a word which means to mutter. What is that? <laughs> when you're all involved, when you're when you're really deeply in thought, what does it look like you're doing? Looks like you're you're almost talking to yourself, right? If if you're all by yourself, all all away somewhere, but you're sitting there and your your lips are kind of moving, and maybe you're moving your arms and and that sort of thing. And if somebody else sees you, they they might say, "What in the world is wrong with you?" But you're you're engaged in muttering. <laughs> you're engaged in 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 deep meditation. You're so deep in thought that you're kind of oblivious to, to everything around you. You're, you're oblivious that you maybe look a little silly to, for your lips to be moving or your arms to be gesturing or something like that. But, but that's the biblical, the Old Testament biblical word for meditate, to mutter, to, to be so deeply involved in something that, that everything else just kind of fades away and, and you're just totally engrossed in that thought. The psalmist tells us in the first psalm, that the blessed man is he who thinks so deeply and profoundly on the laws of God that that, that that occupies his thinking 24 hours a day. That man is blessed. <laughs> In Psalm 2, the psalmist tells us that the, the, the people or the nation that, that imagine, that, that meditate on, that mutter a vain thing, wow, they're on the other side of the coin. That's, that's not a good thing at all. So both of these psalms give us a picture of, of a man doing something with his mind. We either use our mind to focus on the laws and the precepts of God, or we use our minds to focus on vain, empty, pointless, absolutely nothing to them things that are going to go nowhere. So both of these psalms call us to be a people of deep thought and meditation and reflection. <laughs> the question is, what are we deeply thinking upon and meditating upon and reflecting upon? Okay. So in, in stanza one, we, we see these kings rebelling and vainly thinking, meditating, muttering upon things that are never going to happen. Don't sit around all day dreaming that if you flap your arms, someday you're going to be able to fly. Because you're not. 
So don't waste the mental energy on that sort of thing. Don't think of vain things. Think of something more, more positive and productive, et cetera, et cetera. Stanza two, we, we see in total contrast to the chaos of earth, the serenity of heaven where God's laughing at this silly little rebellion because it's going to go nowhere. And it's going to go nowhere because God has established his anointed one on his holy hill in Zion. In stanza three, we get to listen to the father and the son talking to one another. And because of the son's obedience, the father saying to him, ask of me. And these nations that are currently in rebellion, they're yours. They're the reward of your obedience. Stanza four, we're back on earth. <laughs> and we're talking again to the kings that were in rebellion back in stanza one. But now the rebellion's not as bad as we thought it was, is it? Because, because of stanzas two and three, we've now got a perspective on that, that rebellion in stanza one. In stanza one, it looks so scary. In stanza four, it doesn't look so scary anymore, does it? Because we've sung stanzas two and three, and now we understand the way things really are. So now we're back to... To address now, now we're not looking in terror of to the kings of the earth. Now we're talking to the kings of the earth. <laughs> in fact, we're not just talking to them, we're issuing some commands. <laughs> the peasants with pitchforks have taken over, and, and we're issuing commands now to the king. So these kings that that in, in, in stanza one were meditating upon a vain thing. Now we tell them what to do with their minds. Be wise now, verse 10, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Now I'm not scared anymore because now I've got a different perspective. I've interpreted earthly events from a heavenly viewpoint. Okay, so the earthly events now look entirely different to me. And so now, instead of cowering in fear in front of the kings of the earth, now I declare to the kings of the earth some things. You guys were foolish. You guys were thinking about stuff that's never, ever going to happen. So what should you do when you're thinking about stuff that's never, ever going to happen? You should stop thinking about that kind of stuff. You should put your mind to <laughs> better and more profitable activity. Be wise now, therefore, ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Okay? So if these once rebellious kings are now going to be wise, if they're going to be instructed, what should they do? Three quick commands. Not suggestions commands. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. King, ruler, judge of the earth, God's given you a lot. You've got an honored position. From your position as a king or a judge or a ruler of the earth, you can do a lot of damage or you can do a lot of good. So, 
Rule number one, command number one is quit serving yourself. You're a king, but don't let it go to your head. Quit serving yourself. The point is not your kingdom. The point is Christ's kingdom. So, just like everybody else, you serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear. Do it with reverence. Do it with gravity. Do it with awe. Serve the Lord with fear. Stop trying to build and expand your little kingdom. And honor and serve and, and build the kingdom of Christ. Because you're a king, you can do a lot of stuff. You can do a lot of mischief, or you can do a lot of good stuff. So stop being a self-centered little earthly humanistic king and be a king who goes about the business of building Christ's kingdom. Command number two, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, be glad, be grateful for the position that God has put you in. The biblical uh, perspective is to whom much is given, much is also required. So God's given you much. He's made you a king. He's made you a ruler of the earth. So joyfully go about the task of doing good with that power, that responsibility that you have been, been given. Rejoice that God has placed you in this role, but rejoice with trembling. Recognize that that, that power that has been given to you, that authority that has been given to you, when exercised for good, can do all kinds of wonderful things in this world. And when exercised for evil, can, can bring untold disaster and headache and heartache, etc. Kings of the earth, be wise. Judges of the earth, be instructed. Rule number one, serve the Lord with fear. Rule number two, rejoice with trembling. And rule number three, Kiss the sun. In the Old Testament times, if you were brought into the presence of a king, you would do one of two things. You would kiss his hand, which would symbolize that you were one of his glad subjects, and you gratefully put yourself under his authority, and you were grateful for his rule and his kingship, amongst you, or if you were a defeated king, a defeated enemy, you would kiss his feet to symbolize that he had conquered you and you were bringing your kingdom under the control and the authority of his kingdom. So one way or the other, when you would walk into the presence of a king, you would kiss him, you would kiss his hand, or you would kiss his feet. So, the admonition to the kings of the earth is, kiss the sun. And you'll notice it's not a, a period, it's comma. Kiss the sun. Accept his authority over you, either gladly by kissing his hand, his ring, sometimes the king would have a signet ring symbolizing his power on his hand. You can kiss his hand, kiss his ring as a symbol of your glad submission to his authority, or you can kiss his feet, which is a symbol of he has just crushed you. 
and he is now bringing you as a defeated enemy into his kingdom. So one way or the other, you will kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath, there's that word again, is kindled but a little. You don't see that verse printed on Hallmark Christmas cards, do you? So this verse speak, this, our psalm speaks obviously very, very highly, very, very deeply and profoundly about the authority of Jesus Christ. When in the New Testament we, we hear our Lord, we're going through the book of Matthew when we get to the end and we hear our Lord after his resurrection declare, all power, all authority has been given unto me, comma, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. It's, it's the New Testament expression of, of Psalm 2. We didn't have time to get to it this morning, but if you go through your notes, twice this psalm is quoted in, in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul's first printed sermon, Paul was preaching before the events recorded in Acts 13, but a sermon of Paul is recorded for us in Acts 13. That's the first recorded sermon of Paul. Paul's text was Psalm 2. And he declares that at the resurrection, it was the public declaration of the Father that he's accepted the work of the Son. You've said in, psalm, in the second psalm that you've established your Son upon your holy hill of Zion. Paul interprets that as the resurrection. It is at the resurrection that the Father declares to the world that he accepts the work of the Son. The resurrection is that great public disclosure of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so when he gives his great commission, it is based upon the fact that he is the risen Savior, that now all nations are to be discipled under him. It is the inauguration of the new covenant when these things reach their culmination, where these things are fulfilled. So... Kings of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then we close with a little line. that It's not, it's not out of place. It's, it's the culmination of all of these things. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Okay. The, the entryway into the book of Psalms, the, the door that, that opens all of these songs that God would have his people sing in worship unto him, is Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 starts with the notion, blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. So we've got a, a negative description of a blessed man in, in Psalm 1. We've got a positive description of a blessed man in Psalm 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he, we've already talked about that word, meditate day and night. Okay, Psalm 2 gives us a picture of the, the stability of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If we are his, 
we are stable, we are strong, we are secure, because God has established his king upon his holy hill of Zion, and nothing on earth can do anything about that. You can pout about it until you're blue in the face, but it doesn't change anything. The kings of the earth that it, in our first stanza of Psalm 2 that look so strong, we, we find by the time we get to the fourth stanza, they're not so strong or stable at all. They're, they're going to be broken like a potter's vessel if they don't get their acts together again. Psalm 1, again, the first couple of verses describe the, the blessed man, verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, we've got an analogy. The blessed man is the guy who doesn't, listen to all the nonsense, but that does meditate in the day and night in the law of the Lord, what is that guy like? That guy, the Psalms tell us, is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf doesn't wither and everything he does prospers. That's the picture of a godly man, a godly woman. That's the stability of someone who belongs to God. When we sang in our, our second psalm, our first stanza, we were so nervous because the kings and the rulers of the earth looked so strong in their rebellion against God but by the time we got to stanza four, we, we realized they weren't. In Psalm 1, we're not talking about, Psalm 2 is talking about the nations. Psalm 1 talks about an individual. The individual that meditates in the law of the Lord is like the tree planted by the rivers of water. What's the other guy like? Verse 4 of Psalm 1. The ungodly are not so... But they are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Individually, <laughs> it's, it's not the ungodly who are strong and sturdy and planted and established. It's the godly. And corporately, collectively, nations, peoples, individually or corporately, it is not the nations that, that are strong militarily or economically or whatever, it is the nations that have kissed the sun and, and bowed to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ that are established. So between these two psalms, we've got this entryway into the, into the whole Psalter here, and it continues all the way through. It continues showing us the stability, the permanence of the righteous, of the godly, and the impermanence. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away of that which is ungodly. Didn't have time to go over too many of your, your quotes. I hope you'll, you'll follow up on a, a couple of those uh, at home. But um, let's, uh, let's, let's just look at Pastor Spurgeon's last quote on our, our second page there. It requires a little tiny bit of, uh, of historical... Uh, background on it, but uh, let's, uh, let's think on that. Pastor Spurgeon says, the gospel takes a high tone before the rulers of the earth. 
And they who preach it should, like John Knox, who's John Knox, should magnify their office by bold rebukes and manly utterances, even in the royal presence. In the mid-1800s, Pastor Spurgeon gave us a little quote there, and he, he takes us back even a couple of more centuries to a guy by the name of John Knox. Who was John Knox? He was the great apostle of Scotland. He was the man that brought the Reformation to Scotland. If you know anything about him at all, you know that, uh, that he was bold and fearless and that sort of thing. And uh, Knox once said that Psalm 2 is the pattern for preachers. <laughs> What did John Knox mean by saying that Psalm 2 was the pattern for preachers? In the mid-1500s, Knox was a Scotsman that traveled to Geneva for a couple of years and studied under Calvin and took the knowledge that he gained there in Geneva back to Scotland and started preaching in Scotland. And uh, At that point in time, Mary Tudor was the Queen of Scotland, if you remember your high school history books. Mary was not a fan of Protestantism and uh, regularly persecuted it and so forth. And Knox would regularly rebuke her for all kinds of uh, ungodly things. And uh, people were always worrying, John, 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 let, let somebody else go after Mary. If you do that, she's going to send her soldiers after you one of these days and we'll, we'll lose your leadership. We, we need you. But Knox said... <laughs> According to Psalm 2, it is the preacher's job to confront the kings and queens of the earth with the responsibility to kiss the sun. He said, therefore, I will confront her or dukes or nobles or anybody in any authority. I will remind them that their responsibility is to rule under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. So Pastor Spurgeon, a few centuries later, reminds us quoting Knox, that it's the preacher's responsibility. You say, well, that Psalm 2 thing there, that's kind of a perspective that's, that's kind of weird or kind of new to me or something like that. The 20th and the 21st century churches have lost the vision of, of confronting evil in high places by the declaration of the, of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is part of the Bible, <laughs> and it must be proclaimed and the kings of the earth must be called upon to submit their rule to the righteous rule of Jesus Christ. So may God give us the grace to, uh, to loudly as a church, loudly and boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the nations.